to John chapter 3 again. And this morning we want to uh, continue looking at uh, the book of John. And uh, we've read the text this morning. Let's see, we've got uh, children dismissed at this time. If preacher forgets, they just get up and go, that's fine. All right. One of the uh, greatest lies that Satan has put on the human race, and we talked about Satan in our Sunday school hour this morning, but one of the greatest lies he's put on the human race is that religion can save you. And by religion, I mean an adherence to beliefs and practices of a religion in hope that your performance will gain you a right standing before God. Now, whether it's Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism or Catholicism or Judaism or even Christianity. You know, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians and they're not Christians at all. They've taken on the, the name Christian. And there have always been millions who've mistakenly thought that obedience to their religion would earn them an eternal life. Now the four Gospels make it very clear the most difficult people to reach with the Gospel are not the notorious wicked, but rather the outwardly religious number of accounts uh, of corrupt tax collectors, immoral people coming to salvation. They knew that they were sinners and they could not save themselves, but it was the religious crowd that opposed Jesus, eventually crucified him, and they were blind to their own sins of pride and self-righteousness. And the religion served not to save them, but to condemn them. But Jesus did not come to promote religion. He did not flatter those who were religious by saying, well, he was glad to see their religious activities, and he too was a religious person. No, when the religious leaders complained that Jesus socialized with sinners, he replied in Luke 5, 31 and 32, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, he was not saying that some are so righteous and they're righteous enough that they can get to heaven by their own good deeds. No, he's not saying that. But rather, when he says righteous, he meant self-righteous. Their pride blinded them to their sin and kept them from coming to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. Now, remember in the close of chapter 2, there are many who believed in Jesus when they saw the signs, that is, the miracles that he performed. But Jesus didn't believe in them because he could see the true, true condition of their hearts. And these verses kind of serve as an introduction to the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, one that no doubt most, if not all of us, are familiar with. John connects the story by using the word man or men. He says in chapter 2, verse 24, that Jesus 
knew all men. And then he adds in verse 25, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, we remember in the original, the chapter breaks are not there. And so the next verse, chapter 3 and verse 1, starts out, now there was uh, there was a man. There was a man. So he goes, knew all men, needed not any should testify of man, he knew what was in man, and then he says, now there was a man. And there's a connection between the man of chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, and the man of chapter 3, verse 1. There's also a connection between people who observe Jesus' miracles. In verse 23 of chapter 2, he said, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles or the signs that he did. The miracles, and then that's connected with chapter 3 and verse 2, when it says, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest. And a further connection is that Jesus, knowing all men and what was in man, evident, uh, was evident in his reply to Nicodemus. You see, Jesus could see beneath Nicodemus' religious veneer. He knew that Nicodemus' religion could not save him. He needed new birth. And so this encounter, this, this experience, this, this uh, story about Jesus and Nicodemus tells us that religion cannot save you because to enter God's eternal kingdom, you need the new birth by the Holy Spirit. The story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus goes actually verses 1 through 21, but somewhere after verse 12, it seems like Nicodemus kind of fades out of the record here. And we see it, him talking about Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness, and probably the direct words of Jesus fade after chapter 3, verse 15. And then we have some commentary uh, by John that runs from verses 16 through 21. But we're going to look at verses 15, uh, 1 through 15 this morning. And we're going to notice, first of all, the must, the must of the new birth. We're talking about the new birth. It became part of common language here in America some years ago. At one point, uh, 70% of Americans claimed to be born again. Some of us remember Jimmy Carter running for president during his presidential campaign. He said he had been born again. And then since Carter, it seems like every American president has said that he had a religious experience, which they all referred to as being born again. And I hope they have been. But this is not a new phrase. Not something just took place here in recent years of uh, our nation's history. But in 1 Peter 1.23, it speaks of the new birth. James mentions it in James 1 and verse 18, as does John in the epistle of John. Well, what does it mean to be born again? That little phrase literally means to be born from above. It carries with it the idea of getting a fresh start, a new life 
from heaven. And we call this experience being saved or being born again. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, Titus uses the term regeneration. Means the exact same thing. It means that you've been regenerated, you have a new life, you get a new start. You know, so many people have this thing confused. They are seeking reformation instead of regeneration. That is, they are trying to turn over a new leaf or get a new lease on life, as it uh, has been said. And what the world needs is not reformation, but regeneration. Every person under the sound of my voice needs regeneration, not reformation. You see, reformation is just whitewashing. But regeneration will wash you white. Reformation is putting, uh, will, uh, reformation will put new clothes on a man. But regeneration will put a new man in his clothes. And what the world needs, what you need, what I need, is regeneration. And you see, if you've been born only once, then friend, you're going to die twice. But if you've been born twice, you will never die because death has been swallowed up in life. And with that in mind, let me just share you the must of, share with you the must of new birth. Let me show you why it's necessary, especially if you want to go to heaven. First of all, you have the nature of humanity. Nicodemus received a lot of criticism for approaching Jesus at night. Some people have suggested he came at night because he was ashamed and because he was trying to hide what he was doing. I don't know if that was the reason. We're not really told. He could have come by night because he was a busy man and he knew that Jesus was a busy man. And perhaps he came at night because he wanted to have some uninterrupted time with the Lord Jesus. Now, you'll notice that when this man came to Jesus, he came humbly, and he was very complimentary to Jesus. He came with some serious questions, and I dare say that he did not expect the answer he received. Jesus told him, you must be born again. Surely Nicodemus could have thought, well, that's a mistake, after all. If you looked at this man and all that he was, had going for him, you would never expect him to need to be born again. Not Nicodemus. Well, maybe some wino or some druggie needs to be saved and born again. Maybe some wayward woman needs to be a new birth. Well, that wasted life down in the gutter, they need to be born again. But not someone like Nicodemus. Surely this wouldn't apply to him. If you looked at this man, you thought, well, he's got everything going for him. He had all the pluses and none of the minuses from the human perspective. But look at all that this man had going for him. First of all, Nicodemus was a rich man. Tradition tells us that Nicodemus was one of the three richest men in Jerusalem. He had more money than he knew what to do with. What we have does not change what we are. You can have all the money in the world, you can have plenty, but it does not change the fact that you're still a sinner and you need a Savior. Your money can buy you many things here in this world, but it cannot buy you heaven. He was a rich man. Secondly, he was a respectable man. When he walked down the streets, people knew who he was. They pointed to him and said, uh, hey, 
Johnny, that's Nicodemus. You know? Susie, that's that's Nicodemus there. He was respected. He was held in great esteem by all who knew him and saw him. He was, after all, a ruler in Israel. And still, what we achieve does not change what we are. What we have does not change what we are. What we achieve does not change what we are. It is good to be respected. It is good to have a good name. But that will not give you a place in heaven. Nicodemus was a religious man. He was a Pharisee. He kept the law. He was morally pure to a degree that you and I cannot even imagine. Even Jesus recognized the religious efforts of this man. He paid his tithes. He did everything the law said to do. He kept the written law and the traditions of the elders. He never touched a woman. He probably avoided looking at them when impossible. He would not come in contact with a sinner. He was a holy man. Still, what he what we do does not change who we are. What we have does not change who we are. What we achieve does not change what we are. What we do does not change what, who we are. In spite of the outward attempts at righteousness, Nicodemus was a religious man in need of a redeemer. Again, it's good to live a clean and holy life, but it will not save your soul. Your religious activities will not do the job. Here's where many well-meaning people are confused. They think if they can be good enough, do enough, it's going to guarantee them a place in heaven. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Salvation only comes through new birth. Why? Because no matter what you have, what you do, who you are, you're still a sinner. Nothing you have, do, or are changed uh, uh, what you are, a sinner still needs a Savior. So you must be born again. It's not a take it or leave it proposition. It's a divine must. If you want to miss hell and go to heaven, you must be born again. And so the nature, the human nature demands it. Secondly, the nature of heaven makes it a must. In verse 3, Jesus says that without the new birth, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice what kind of place heaven is. It is the kingdom of God. Do you understand what he's saying? It has been said that heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Did you know that this is true? One of the most precious benefits of the new birth is the fact that we receive a new nature when we are saved. And when we get saved, you receive God's nature, a nature from heaven. The new birth prepares you for life in a new kingdom. And the only way for you to get into heaven is for you to get heaven in you first. Besides, if you want to go, go to heaven when uh, with a lost uh, If you went to heaven with a lost, fallen nature, you'd be miserable. If you went to heaven with a lost, fallen nature, you'd be miserable. It's not a place for lost people. It's not a place for 
people with a fallen nature. Heaven would become hell for you. You would never enjoy the land because you have, uh, unless you had a new nature. Even all the worship and the praise and the glories of heaven, they would be offensive to you if you went there, if you were lost. Be against your nature to enjoy anything in heaven. And that's why we need the new birth. Now this business of the new birth kind of got me thinking. Do you ever see a bird swimming laps at the pool? I've seen a few of them, you know, drinking maybe at a pool of water. But they don't swim laps, going back and forth. It's against their nature. You ever see a cow riding a bicycle? Maybe in a cartoon or something, but not in real life. It's against their nature. Ever see uh, pigs fly from limb to limb? You know? No. Why? Because it's against their nature. My friends, you will never see a lost sinner in heaven. Why? Because it's against their nature. If you're going to go there, you need a new nature. And the only way to get a new nature is through the new birth. Why? Your first birth provided you a physical, fleshly nature. You need a new birth, a birth from heaven, to provide you with a new spiritual nature. And that's why Jesus said, ye must be born again. Don't settle for maybe, hope so, or think so. Get born again and you'll know so. The new birth is a must. Notice, secondly, the mystery of the new birth. In verses 4 through 8, when Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be born again, it kind of messed with his mind. He's having a hard time grasping this. He, who was a master or a teacher, a ruler in Israel, uh, he was having a hard time with this. He imagined himself going back into his mother's womb to be born a second time. And I'm sure his mother would have vetoed that. He wanted to know, how could this happen? And so asked Jesus, how? You know, the only dumb question is the question you don't ask. So he asked, how can this happen? And he knows that he is in the presence of a mystery and he wants the answers. There's no doubt that new birth is kind of a mysterious thing, is it not? And none of us really, truly understands everything there is to know about it. It's still a mystery, even to those of us who have experienced it. However, don't let the fact that it's a mystery cause you to avoid it. You don't let the mystery of electricity cause you to sit in the dark, do you? Do you understand how this works? I mean, really understand how it works. I don't. I mean, if you're an electrician, maybe you've got some, some better understanding than me. But I don't say, well, I don't know how that works. I'm just going to sit here in the dark. You don't let the mystery of how a brown cow can eat green grass and have yellow butter and white milk you don't let that stop you from eating butter and milk and ice cream, do you? Hmm, I don't know if I should eat this ice cream. That's a mystery to me. I don't let it stop me. So why would we allow the mystery of the new birth to keep us from being saved? Notice how Jesus addresses this mystery 
First of all, he compares it to a birth, a physical birth. Physical birth is a mystery. Even doctors who specialize in that field know that the human birth is a marvelous mystery that no one can fully explain. When Jesus says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, he's talking about a physical birth and a spiritual birth. He's telling us that for a man to get to heaven, you have to have two birthdays. There must be a day when you're born into the kingdom of man and a day when you're born into the kingdom of God. And there are a few ways which the physical birth can be used to illustrate the spiritual birth. Number one, physical birth provides life. A baby, babies have life because they're born, because, and likewise, the spiritual birth provides a person with spiritual life. Secondly, physical birth only happens once. Physically speaking, you can only be born one time. And all the mothers said, Amen. <laughs> Especially, uh, you know, going through that, uh, and some of, you mothers have experienced that uh, a number of times, but not with the same person. It only happened once. Spiritually, the same thing is true. Your spiritual birth is a one-time-for-all-time experience. You cannot undo it, and it cannot be repeated. Physical birth takes place because of the suffering of another. A mother enters the very jaws of death to bring life into this world. And Jesus entered the cruel jaws of death so that we might be born again. The new birth rests squarely upon the pain and suffering of another. And then physical birth gives an infant brand new start. You know, no baby is born with a past. Other than the fact that they were in that womb for nine months. They really have no past. They only have a future. And so it is with the new birth. When you get saved, you get a brand new start. Your past is wiped away and a new, clean future lies in front of you. The new birth is like a physical birth. So he compares it to a birth. Secondly, he compares it to a breeze. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about a breeze meaning something easy or, well, that was a breeze, you know. No, I'm not talking about that kind of breeze. Something that's effortless. No, Jesus tells Nicodemus that just as the wind can be felt, can be measured, and the effects can, uh, of it can be seen, where it came from and where it went still remains a mystery. The new birth is the same way. You cannot see God do his work in a heart, but you can see the effects of the wind of the Spirit in that life. When you see a drunkard leave his bottle, you know God has been working. When you hear clean language come from a mouth of one who used to have a mouth like a sewer, you know God has been at work. When you see a wicked, hateful man turn into a sweet, loving, holy saint, you know the wind of the Spirit has been blowing in his soul. It's a mystery. We don't understand it completely, because, but we see that it happens, and there's no denying the effects of the power of God when he works in a human heart. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, I can save you, and when I do, you will never be the same. That's what God does for those who come to him by faith. 
He changes them. He alters their lives forever. And by the way, the wind of the Spirit was blowing in the soul of Nicodemus, but he could not control that wind. It might be gone in an instant, never to return. The time for Nicodemus was to heed God's call when the wind was blowing in his heart. And maybe the wind is blowing in your heart this morning. Now is the accepted time. Now is the time to be saved. He'll not always deal with you like he is right now. And the best for you to, thing for you to do is to come when you hear, uh, come to him when you hear his calling. And then thirdly, not only the must of the new birth and the mystery of the new birth, but the means of the new birth. When Nicodemus hears these things, he wants to know, how is this possible? And Jesus will take a few verses here to explain to him and to us how the new birth becomes a reality. First, there's the role of the Savior. In verse 13 and 14, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the Savior's part in the new birth was to leave heaven to come to this world to die for sin. And listen, if that's your need this morning to be born again, that's what Jesus did for you. He left heaven. He took upon himself a human body, lived without sin, died a horrible death on the cross. And Jesus reminds Nicodemus of the time when Israel had sinned and God had sent serpents in among them to bite them as judgment. And as a Pharisee, he certainly would have known that. He was familiar with the Old Testament and the things that had taken place in the lives of his people. And so Jesus reminds Nicodemus of the serpents that came as a result of Israel's sin. As the serpents bit, many people in Israel died. And when the tragic event took place, God commanded Moses to make a brass snake, put it up on a pole. And Jesus said he was like that snake. He came to this world to be put on a cross. He came to die a sacrifice for sin. He came to die that we, through his death, might live. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid your sin debt in full. There's nothing more owing on your account if you'll receive him by faith. He did this, uh, he did his part when he died and he rose from the dead. That was the role of the Savior. But there's also the role of the sinner. Look at verse 15. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What must the lost, hell-bound sinner do to be saved? The answer is right here in verse 15. It is a one-word answer, actually. It's the word believe. Just like these people in ancient Israel who had been bitten by the fiery serpents, all they had to do was look and live. If you need to be saved, there's nothing left for you to do but to believe in Jesus, receive his finished work at Calvary as a payment for your sins. For you, there is nothing to do because he did it all. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I wonder this morning, have you done that? Are you saved? And sure, you can be. The Greek historian Herodotus said that the ancient Egyptians believed in the new birth. They believed that when a person died, they became whatever animal happened to have been born at the same time. And then they went from that animal 
to another animal life and then to another animal's life until they had gone through all the animals of the animal kingdom. And then the Egyptians believed that you could be born again. And that's what they called it. Born again as a human being. And they believed in the process would take 3,000 years. You know what that's really called? That's not regeneration. That's reincarnation. And they believed a lie. Well, I've got some good news. You can be born again, and I don't mean become an animal. I don't mean become another human being. I mean you can be born into the family of God and become God's child. And the best news is you don't have to wait 3,000 years. You don't have to wait 3,000 days. You don't have to wait another second. You can be born again right now. Now, what was it that drew Nicodemus to Jesus that night? I think it was the events of John chapter 2, especially verses 13 through 25. And there Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple and he proclaimed the fact that his, of his own death and resurrection. The Bible tells us that many of the people believed in him because of his miracles. Again, that's in verse 23 of chapter 2. And yet Jesus did not commit himself to them. Because he knew that their faith was superficial. It was based on the miracles and not genuine love for him. No doubt Nicodemus saw what Jesus did in the temple. No doubt Nicodemus heard what Jesus had said to those he confronted in the temple. And when he heard and what he saw created a hunger within his soul to know more about Jesus. So he came and he heard the gospel. Did Nicodemus ever get saved? I think he did. Why do I think that? Well, Nicodemus stood up for Jesus before the Sanhedrin later in John chapter 7. And we're told Nicodemus helped Joseph of Arimathea bury the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. Nicodemus put his wallet and his well-being on the line for Jesus. And that's the kind of thing a saved man will do. So I think he did. He bore fruit. And so as we close today, let me just go back to this passage in John chapter 2 and verse 24 and 25 for just a moment. Before Nicodemus came to Jesus, Jesus knew what was in the heart of Nicodemus. Jesus knew what he needed when he came that night. Jesus cut through all the religious nonsense and all the foolishness. And Jesus told Nicodemus exactly what he needed to hear. He told him how to be saved. And again, do you notice there in verse 24, it says, he knew all men. In verse 25, he says, he knew what was in man. Listen, Jesus knows your heart this morning as well. He can see into every heart here, and he knows what's in your heart. He knows whether or not you are saved. He knows whether or not you have been born again. He knows all there is about you, and he knows All these things and he still loves you. He also knows that if you come to him, he will save you by his grace. He knows that if you will come to him like you are, you can leave this building as you ought to be. And if you're not saved this morning, let me invite you to come to Jesus for salvation. You say, preacher, you're talking to folks that have come to church today. 
You're talking to people who sang the hymns and gave in the offering. You're talking to some people who've been baptized and given their testimony, become members of this church. I know that. But I but do I know everyone's heart this morning? There may be some here that are very religious. Because that's all I've really described here is religion. There may be some who are very religious, but they're still lost. Again, I'm going to ask you to humble yourself before the Lord as Nicodemus did and put your faith in the Lord and be born again. Jesus said, ye must be born again. He explained the mystery of the new birth. He gave us the means by where we can be born again, born from above, regenerated, made a new creature in Christ. And if you haven't, won't you do that today? The new birth is not just coming to church. It's not even walking this aisle. That's not the new birth. It's not praying a prayer. Being born again is to believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the God of heaven and that he came to this earth to pay for your sin penalty. There must not only be a genuine belief in this, but a turning from your sin and your old life, which is called repentance. Repentance is an aspect of the gospel that many people leave out these days. It's there. Remember, Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous. That is, those who think they're good enough to be saved and have done enough good works to be saved. But sinners to what? Repentance. Perhaps there's someone here today who says, I walked an aisle once and I got on my knees and I prayed a prayer. But there's been no change. No repentance from the old life then listen, ye must be born again. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning as we close with 